A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Tortoise. Hello, I'm James Harding. Welcome to the news meeting, and I have some news. For Monday, we're going to do this twice a week. You're going to get an episode of the news meeting on Mondays and on Fridays. And that's so that we can talk more about the stories that really matter, discuss what happened over the weekend, try and work out what they mean, where they're leading. Please do follow the feed in your podcast app, and that way you won't miss an episode. And also, if you want to get in touch with me and email us to say what we're getting right, what we're getting wrong, what stories you think should be covered in the news meeting, well, then just email us at newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. I'd love to know what you think of the decisions we come to each and every time we hold this news meeting. Well, let's go on with this week's episode from Tortoise. Welcome to the news meeting. Tensions are flaring in Russia. We begin tonight with the efforts to explain some of the most bizarre 36 hours in recent Russian history. Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner mercenary group that has been on the march to Moscow, says that he is standing down. Now, the 15 million customers of the country's biggest water company may well be wondering tonight what on earth is going on at Thames Water. What a performance, what a way to say goodbye to Elton John. Stormed Glastonbury at his debut at the festival last night. I never thought I'd ever play Glastonbury. I'm joined this week by Basha Cummings, Kat Nealon and Claudia Williams. Hello. Hello. Welcome, welcome. They've each come with one story that they think matters most this week and we're going to discuss it, try and get to the heart of the story and then decide what leads the news. But let's begin with long story short. In a single sentence, Basha, give us a flavour of your story. Prigozhin's propaganda putsch. My God. I went for the alliteration. Yes, again. and also, by the way, a risky endeavour in a podcast studio because peas pop, and so progression yes. propaganda. Sorry to our producer, is, uh, uh, an ambitious task. Cat, um, what's yours? Water, water everywhere. Oh yes, Claudia. A never-ending nightmare. Also, alliteration. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Yeah. <laughs> terrific. It's all, all right. upbeat today. Just, just a description <laughs> of this podcast. <laughs> Basha, let's start with progression. Okay, so. Uh, not surprisingly, I think that what happened uh, in Russia last weekend um, with an attempted coup by the Wagner Group and its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, is the story that matters. So just for people who need a bit of a reminder about how it all went down. So Prigozhin started off, I mean, there's been months of escalation. Obviously, the Wagner Group, this private military company, have been incredibly important in the war in Ukraine for Putin. They've basically been the main force trying to capture Bakhmut, which people will remember has been this sort of long and grinding attritional fight to capture this one particular town. 
But over the last few months, as Wagner's importance has grown, Prigozhin has become much more um, bullish. He's become much more confident in criticizing the Russian military leadership. But he's always been very careful about how he frames the relationship with Putin and Putin's responsibility for the things that might be going wrong in this offensive in Ukraine. But that has really started to escalate over the last few weeks. And it, it kind of all hinged on really two things. One is that Prigozhin claimed that there had been this Russian military attack on Wagner bases, which had resulted in a Russian, a significant Russian loss of life. And there was also this move from uh, Sergei Shoigu, who's the defense minister, to try and subsume Wagner into the Russian military. So he was saying that the mercenaries should sign a contract directly with the defense ministry. And that would have been I think, catastrophic for Prigozhin for two reasons. One is because his power comes from having this semi-autonomous force, but also it's a huge money-making enterprise. And we've done a podcast about how, you know, a lot of Wagner's real power comes from its endeavors in Central Africa and in Libya and elsewhere. So it seemed these sort of, whether it's true that there was a Russian military attack on Wagner, we don't know, that hasn't been independently verified, but it is true that the Russian leadership has has been unsure of how to deal with this growing threat from Wagner and its growing autonomy. And so this this attempt to try and subsume it seems to have left Prigozhin with kind of two choices. One is to go along with it and therefore sort of result in his own emasculation. The other option uh, is to say no and do something about it. And he chose to do something about it. So he marches on Rostov-on-Don, which is a huge military center uh, in Russia, which is basically where they lead the offensive into Ukraine from. Let's come to, in a moment, where this might go. But let's start with where it came from. So usually mm. uh, this would be an opportunity to say, well, Basha, you did a podcast on Wagner's war. And in we fact, did. Claudia and I did you do did. a podcast. But, it, but uh, but interesting, you know, news is not prediction, is it? News is sometimes identifying what matters, in that sense, what's coming. But looking back on the work, it was a fair few months you did on that Prigozhin project. Looking back on it, what do you think we missed? What do you think we didn't see coming? Because we were right to identify the Wagner group as critical to the fortunes of Russia in its invasion of Ukraine. But I'm not sure that we got the flip-flop nature of Prigozhin. We didn't get the fragmentation of the Russian military entirely right. And I wonder whether or not we understood or misunderstood his strength. Yeah, I think that's right. And I've been thinking a lot about that over the last week. I think we assumed that some of his bravado and his bolshiness in criticizing the Russian leadership was part of a kind of broader strategic sort of psyops to try and make it seem as if there was some you know there there was some credible threat to Putin but we sort of underestimated it we said it probably wouldn't amount to much we said that in the end Putin would probably hold the power I think we probably misunderstood that a bit because I think Prigozhin has become bolder and more powerful than many people gave him credit for. Nina predicted it, didn't she? Nina wrote a piece in January saying that she thought Prigozhin was going to do exactly what he, he did do. Yeah. If you're listening and you're wondering who Nina is, <laughs> Sorry. A, she's not in the room, but B, she's Nina Kuriata, who's our Ukraine editor uh, and who's been with us uh, covering the Ukraine war since the start. Yeah. But she, she predicted that Prigozhin would challenge Putin. Yeah. What do you think, Claudia? When we did that podcast, 
we were particularly interested, this was in February of this year, we were particularly interested in the relationship between Putin and Prigozhin. And I think we were hit on the fact that it was incredibly interested and people didn't necessarily know what was going on. And I think, as Basha says, we maybe overestimated the extent to which Putin was a puppet master and Prigozhin was acting in a way which served his interests. I'm still particularly interested in to what extent this whole thing has been theatre. And I don't think we necessarily know Mm. what Prigozhin's end aim actually was and what he was what, what he was aiming for with that march. Basha, where does it go? Um, well, actually, my argument is that the sort of the military column and the marching on Moscow, it, it was an incredibly powerful image and it was a sort of, you know, an unprecedented crisis for Putin in his 23-year uh, running of Russia. But I think there's something else here which I think is just as powerful, which is the the sort of the attack on the narrative which Prigozhin launched in this telegram, uh, uh, in a telegram, what do you call them? Broadcast? Post. Post. Yeah. Actually, before Saturday. So this was on Friday. And I think it's worth paying attention to it because I think that that might be where the real power of what happened uh, really is. So he basically went straight after Putin's narrative. He said that the whole war in Ukraine is a poorly planned operation, that the Ministry of Defense is trying to deceive the public and the president and spin the story that there were insane levels of aggression from the Ukrainian side, that they were going to attack us together with the whole NATO bloc. And he said that really the special operation was started for a completely different reason. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a place where for over a year they've been deliberately not calling it a war, they've been, you know, trying to refer to it as a, as a, you know, an act of defence. I think the, f- and, and you can see in the way that the Wagner uh, soldiers and Prigozhin were welcomed into Rostov-on-Don and they were being cheered, that I think there is the real power in what happened is that puncturing of a narrative. And you can see in Putin's response that he then shifts his own reply. He doesn't say anything about this is about the denazification of Ukraine in his address on Saturday. He doesn't say that, you know, this is, that we have to uh, go and, you know, liberate one of our territories as part of this kind of bigger Russian uh, imperial idea. He says this is about the existence of Russia. I think this leaves us with so many unanswered questions. Why did he turn around? What's Lukashenko, Alexander Lukashenko, the uh, Belarusian president's game in all of this? How much are you seeing the fragmentation of the army, the Chechen faction, the Wagner faction, the Shoigu kind of in principle general army? What will be the impact of this you know, mutiny of sorts on the war in Ukraine and what will be the domestic crackdown in Russia on any forms of dissent, further crackdown, any further assertion of power. The one biggest question of all, of course, is what will happen to Prigozhin and the Wagner group? Mm. And I know that's an unfair question, Basha, but where do you think <laughs> Well, he if ends I up? look at my crystal ball, um, I mean, I think there's a... I think what happens to Prigozhin is very unclear. Um, there have been lots of sort of dark jokes online about he should stay away from balconies and windows because we know that so many powerful Russians have uh, their lives have ended in that way in mysterious circumstances. Um, I think it's. I don't think anyone knows what will happen to Prigozhin. I think they're guessing when they. Uh, 
try. But I think what happens to the Wagner force? Will the loyal Wagner fighters join him in Belarus? And will some of them redeploy to Africa? Will they recenter their focus there? But just to summarize, because there's so many elements of this, I think the fundamental reason why this matters and should be the story that leads this week is because it demonstrates that the Russian, that, that Putin's Russia and the entire project of the war on Ukraine is so much shakier and so much more vulnerable than we realized. Well, well let's come back and put that in the context of the stories we've got. So, Kat, what's your story? Water, water everywhere. Yeah. So this is the story uh, about Thames Water's potential imminent collapse. Um, We learnt this week that contingency plans are being drawn up for the collapse of Thames Water, which serves 15 million people in the UK, a quarter of the total population. Uh, They are in crisis talks uh, to secure extra funding. Uh, The government is involved. Uh, Effectively, investors are refusing a £1 billion lifeline, having already ploughed more money in um, because of this this sort of brewing crisis. And so now um, there is talk about it potentially going into a special administrative regime, uh, effectively taking it into public ownership. But I'm just going to interrupt you one second, Kat, Mm. because I'm aware of listeners who might not be as old as me Mm. and also might not be in the UK. Thames Water, I should just say, if you're thinking, what is that? Is that the water of the Thames? Sometimes it looks a little like it, but no. Um, what happened in the UK was uh, a number of years ago, a couple of decades ago now, there was a program of water privatization. So a bunch of different companies were established to provide water for residents, run the sewage systems, and Thames Water is the one that Primarily serves London. Is that right? London and and parts of the southeast. Like like I say, fifteen million people in in the country uh, get their water from uh, Thames Water. But this is a story not just about Thames Water. This is about all of the water companies that have been privatised. When they were privatised, there was no debt. They have subsequently borrowed in the region of sixty billion pounds and paid dividends in the region of seventy two billion pounds uh, during that period interest rates have spiked and now all of a sudden they are massively over leveraged and looking very shaky Um, and this is uh, yet another utility company that may have to go into public ownership parallels with the bulb bailout and big questions about what are the regulators doing and what are the companies doing and how on earth has it come to this situation? You have incredibly complex ownership structures where um, the, the the major investors are a Canadian pensions fund, a UK uh, private pensions fund and an Abu Dhabi pensions fund. And there is one headline today which I think really kind of sums it out, sums it up, which is UK taxpayers could bail out failing water firm owned by China and Abu Dhabi. Why? Claudia, what do you think? I mean, I think it's a massive story. My, well, in the run-up to this podcast, I searched my road WhatsApp because we are, we have Thames Water on my road and there are dozens and dozens of messages in there of people just complaining, people talking about this now. So it obviously has cut through. My concern, I suppose, with it as a story is how to make people understand what's going on because it is really complicated. There are so many numbers. I think the, the the things that people actually care about probably 
um, as kind of readers and water users are sewage mm-hmm. and um, also prices and whether this impacts... Um, so the sewage story was was quite a big one last year because um, Conservative MPs, there was an opposition day debate and Conservative MPs effectively had to vote against uh, changes that would ban the, the flow of sewage into rivers and uh, beaches and they, they, they were ordered to vote against it because it was an opposition day debate. So that has been a sort of political sort of hot potato for for many months now. Um, And they are trying to address it, but it is slow progress. The other thing I think about the bills, and this is the thing that I think really kind of winds people up, is that um, before the the story about uh, the Thames water collapse came out, the the, the first sort of inkling that we got of of the problems was that they were talking about putting bills up by 40%. Mm. This year, um, and uh, a report that I read said that it they could go up by seventy three percent by twenty thirty. Now, this is at the same time when Thames water um, leakages are at a five year high, and one litre in every four that flows through mains pipes is being lost to leakages. And they all seem to be on my road. Sorry, Claudia. But this is symptomatic of the kind of approach to the ownership where instead of investing in the infrastructure required to maintain that, the shareholders are taking dividends, taking money out, paying their pension funds and what have you, um, and not sort of investing in the future. So it's big questions about... You know, is that the appropriate corporate structure for a utility company? But Basha, what do you think? It's it is one of those stories that just makes you feel a kind of blind fury. But I think the bit of it that really has cut through is, you know, we've known for a couple of years in particular, and there have been big campaigns around this recently about the amount of sewage that's leaking into our seas, our rivers, the kind of ecological collapse that that's. Mm-hmm. Um, bringing about and the water companies have been saying well you know we've got this ancient Victorian system and we it needs updating so and then they're saying and as a result we need to re- put your, put bills, your up. bills up and the sort of you know I there's a there's a kind of infuriating loop there that I think does cut through which is the hypocrisy of that which is that if we want to have a you know a working system we have to pay more for it and yet at the other end of it there are people making huge amounts of money delivering an absolutely terrible system and the question about nationalization I think is a really interesting one. Um, I think what is interesting about this question is that it is a debate that is happening now within the public Okay, people are talking about why why are we propping up this company when millionaires, billionaires are taking their profits? It's not a conversation that Labour is wanting to have. And in fact, they are staying as far away from it as possible. They're talking about tighter regulation, imposing caps on bills, all of this sort of tinkering around the edges. They are so, I think, burnt by the Corbyn-McDonnell era when they were talking about nationalising pretty much everything. And of course, there has been this edict sent down from the shadow treasury team that we don't make uncosted pledges, that they are not touching it with a barge pole. And I think that they might be a bit out of step with the public mood on this one. But the reason, Kat, I think you're right, this is a colossal story, is because neither side has a political or a practical answer. Mm. So for Labour, if you do 
nationalized, not an emergency nationalization, a long-term nationalization to invest in the restructuring of the sewage system and to deal with the environmental requirements that water companies need to meet, this is a considerable addition to your budget. And Labour wants to say, no, we're financially prudent, we're not going to bust the budget. And if you're the Conservatives and you say, look, we've come to recognise that there's only so much the private sector can do and that the private sector can't always be trusted to make the right judgments on debt versus profit, you're actually choking off the right's biggest prospect of reinvigorating the British economy, which is investment, private sector investment. So both both of these, I think, political sides look at this story and shy away. And I think there's a, just listening to you, Kat, there's quite a depressing response that I have, which is we live in an age where we begin to understand the big challenges to our society and our political parties for their own reasons want to hide away from them, don't have an answer for them. I think this is emblematic of so many other things that are happening in British society at the minute and um, there was a briefing that I attended last month um, with uh, a group called More in Common that do a lot of focus groups and they said the biggest thing that we keep hearing back from people is broken. Britain is broken. Okay, so whether it's the trains, the schools, the hospitals, the water companies, energy, everything. And we have relied on the sort of Victorian era infrastructure, which in the past may have been maintained and I'm not saying under nationalisation it was it was you know good I know there were lots and lots of problems um, leading up to it being privatised um, but the truth is that in the last sort of 15-20 years that investment has been lacking and now we are sort of reaping the opposite of the benefits of that Alright, as you can tell I could quite happily spend <laughs> a fair few hours getting into Thames Water's debt restructuring um, Former FT journalist put, speaks. Here, Kat is beginning to understand how this works, which is stories are stories, but inflation stories are, are in a different league. Um, let's park it here, take a moment, and then we're going to come to your story, Claudia. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. She's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. (laughs) 
Claudia, what was it? An, a, a, an endless nightmare. What was your... A never-ending nightmare. A never-ending nightmare. Is <laughs> grim and dramatic, <laughs> but I do... By the way, this I is like think. the and finally moment <laughs> of the news meeting. Okay. Uh, a never-ending nightmare. So, um... So my story this week is about the conclusion of the Nicola Bully inquest and what it tells us, I think, about society and how we as journalists and also as people approach these stories now and in the future. Nicola Bully was a 45-year-old mortgage broker and mother of two who went missing in late January of this year. She was walking her dog um, along the banks of a river and then kind of out of nowhere, passers-by found her phone still um, attached to a work call and her dog kind of wandering around. And for all intents and purposes, she disappeared into nowhere. It was a real mystery. Um, And it sparked a police investigation that lasted weeks and it became one of the most high-profile missing persons cases in living memory. And during that period of time when she was missing, which is 24 days, it was a complete circus. It was a frenzy. And almost every party involved in that circus, bar her family, of course, came in for criticism. The media were criticised for approaching the family when they asked for privacy. The police were criticised for disclosing personal information about her um, to the public, which was deemed unnecessary at the time. Although, you know, the police then came back and explained why they did it. Um, And conspiracy theorists, sightseers, kind of social media content creators were very much criticised for visiting the scene, you know, speculating about what happened and it essentially became so bad that the police ended up um, making a dispersal order around the scene of the crime and this is while it's still going while the investigation is still going on one TikToker uh, was accused of harassing locals and received a criminal behaviour order and then you know after 24 days uh, her body was found a mile away from the scene and it didn't end the circus didn't end there This week, the inquest concluded that no third parties were involved and that she died after accidentally falling in the river. Um, And where I think this story becomes particularly important and interesting for this week and is a good example, I think, of a kind of tortoise story is that her family kind of said after the inquest that they still receive negative targeted messages following her death from online sleuths. And essentially, the situation is that people haven't accepted the conclusion of this inquest. And I think it sits at the exact kind of midway point of this Venn diagram of two massive, important competing forces. Um, So you have the kind of absolute obsession with true crime in a way that goes beyond what we've seen in the past. Everyone's always been interested in true crime. It's always been a really, you know, part of the papers that's always been read. There's, There's been this obsession for years. But it's kind of the gamification of these cases. So... Social media content creators are making money from these cases. There's a reason why they want to go to that scene of the crime, and that is because they are getting views, they are getting clicks, and they make money from that, and they get attention. And it's kind of a, it's a self-promotion thing, as well as the kind of wanting to try to find the answer. And the, the other side of the Venn diagram, I think, is the kind of conspiracy theory angle yeah. and the complete lack of trust in media, in police, in the justice system, to the extent that when, when her body was found, and it was announced that an inquest would happen in June, people were really annoyed because they felt entitled to an answer quickly. Hmm. They felt entitled to the answer then and there as if it was a game, as if it was something that had been kind of, they were part of, um, but they, they, they wanted the answer now. And I think those two elements aren't going anywhere. But, uh, actually, I think I've got three, Claudia, because I've got true crime interest, mm-hmm. gamification yeah. of the news, 
by the news media itself mm-hmm. and by social media and a conspiracy theory industry, yeah. um, which I suppose the, those two things feed into. I think such such an interesting case. It is, as you say, it's, a, it's like a true fable, isn't it? It's one of those things where what happens when an accidental death becomes news as sport. Mm. If you stand back from it, and here's the bit I just don't know what to think, what is there that we learn and what's the behaviour that could or should be different, either from the professional news media, social media, the police? This is not the last time such a thing, mm. sadly, is going to happen. Next time, what do we say? Well, I think that's the point, that this is... I think this is a watershed moment, and actually this is... We're going to look back at this kind of period of time in true crime and say, actually, that is potentially the moment where things change because the algorithm is impossible to contain at this point. But I don't, I don't think we will. I don't think we will. I don't think we will look back and say, oh, you remember the Nicola Bully case? It caused such a sensation. There was a frenzy of reporting and speculation and the police were trying to manage the crowd. And when a similar person, and there's a certain thing about a person that we can all identify mm. with going missing, particularly it's about the going missing, that this will happen again. And so that's the question I've got, is how do we, particularly in the news, the police have got to figure out for themselves what they do, what the responsibility of the news is to say, here's what we don't know now, mm. and as a result of what we don't know, as enticing as the not knowing is, we're going to tailor or or limit our reporting. I don't know how you do that because I just see these things happen, you know, again and again and I suspect it'll happen again too. I had I mean I th- I think I had this thought very strongly with the missing submersible the Titan which is that the 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 media responds to the things we respond to the things that we know people are interested in and and we push it up the running order because yeah. we know that that's going to get engagement for us even though we know that this is not a story of huge public interest. A woman who... People go missing all the time. The reason that it was Mm. so prominent in the news was because everyone knew that there was this sort of frenzy around it, and so we fed the frenzy, even if we were taking the position that, you know, we're a serious... I mean, I don't think we necessarily did. I'm not sure that we did cover it, but, you know, legacy news media who would say that they're above the kind of the social media scrum. But the thing is, even if legacy news media wasn't involved, a lot of these YouTubers have much more, you know, a higher subscriber count. But I think it's the, it's the public institutions that respond. So I, I, my feeling, and I had this around the Sarah Everard case as well, is that the police play into uh, the demands and the expectations of this new audience who want to, to feel like they have access. So the releasing of police CCTV and tapes, which I was never totally clear about whether it was in the public, whether we needed to see these things. It's fine that they exist and they should be you know, used in any further investigations or inquests or IOPC reports. But what is the public interest in mm. seeing these moments mm. of investigation? And I thought that about Nicola Bully's case too, is that they were feeding this intensely private information about her as a way, I think, of satisfying this a way of doing two things. One is satisfying this kind of braying crowd of we want to feel involved, we have a right to know the information about the investigation, which I'm not sure is true, but also to give this illusion of access. But they're in an impossible position, aren't they, Basha? In the police, in an impossible position, which is if they don't disclose anything, 
the world decides that the police are useless and they're doing nothing, and it encourages an already quite excited vigilante instinct. Mm -hmm. So they want to show that they're engaged. And when they do disclose, they intrude on privacy, they jump the gun, and they look insensitive and probably incompetent. And the other it's thing is, nice conspiracy theorists say, "Well, they're part of the problem. Look, they're they're not they're not telling you what's going on. They're not giving you the truth." And that's when you get this kind of vacuum in which the the, the theories kind of develop. All right, I, I'm going to have a go in a moment and make a call on what should lead the news. This is one of those weeks where you could really make a strong case for any of the three. But first, Basha. I don't envy you. It's quite a difficult one this week. I think I would lean towards the Nicola Bully story because I think that Claudia's argument is a good one, that that actually it, it's exactly the kind of story that we should pay attention to now rather than at the moment when we were in the eye of the storm. Kat? I'm going for Basha's story because it seems to have so much significance, as you say, the potential breakup of the Russian state, the war in Ukraine, and and sort of finally kind of answering the question perhaps of who really has control there and of all the interests in Africa. It is a global story. Claudia? It's a hard one, actually, between these two. As you pointed out, they're very big stories, but I think my gut tells me that for the audience at the moment the the Thames water story actually matters to people in in a very precise you know their daily lives way at the moment three-way draw we're going to have a moment of democratic centralism here aren't we (laughs) now that we've heard from the people I shall decide um actually just give me one second I'm just gonna write a note before I do (laughs) the suspense (laughs) Um, I can't remember a time where all three people have made the case for each other's stories and it probably tells you something about this week that any of them could lead. I think the Nicola Bully story has a really strong case for leading. I think your point about gamification, Claudia, is really important. I think that the extent to which the cultural backdrop informs the way in which we approach the news and the unintended consequences of that true crime, conspiracy theories. And personally, I've always really struggled to understand what the public understands the rules are governing police investigations when it comes to confidential information and the rights of the family. And the teachable moment, if you like, in the inquest means that would propel it logically to the top of the running order. As I think you could tell, Kat, the reason I am really drawn to the Thames Water story of itself it's enormously significant for people living on Claudia's Road and, as it happens, mine. But the big implications, where does the state end and the private sector begin? I think the unintended consequences of higher inflation, higher interest rates, you think to yourself, oh, that's going to hit an emerging economy or that's going to hit an indebted company. You didn't realize it was going to come home to roost quite so close to home. And I think we didn't even get close to the long-term challenges of water companies in the UK, in the West, in fact, all around the world, meeting demands around climate and environment. And those require huge capital investments. So I think it's a bellwether story for our system of government, the nature of the economy over the next two to five years, and the long-term net zero questions. But I still think that the un 
unanswered questions of the Prigozhin mutiny have possibly the biggest consequences for everyone. And we got to some of those, but the big question is, will Putin's Russia hold? How dangerous and powerful is Alexander Lukashenko? And will this prove to be either a moment of vicious crackdown domestically within Russia or a turning point in the uh, direction of the war? All of those things are frankly historic. And so for that reason, I think that I rather lazily choose to go in chronological order. Prigozhin, Thames Water, Nicola Bully's inquest. All right, well, listen, thanks to all of you. Before we're quite done, though, I just want to spend one moment or maybe a couple of moments talking about something that no one pitched but I thought was really interesting. If you noodle around on the Tortoise website, you'll see that this week we published Tortoise's Global AI Index, and that tries to rank countries based on their capability in AI, investment, talent, the extent to which there's implementation and adoption of artificial intelligence. And so I've just asked Serena Cesario, who has been essentially locked in a windowless room for about six months, going through all the data that put into the AI index. Serena, what was the most significant thing you think that you learnt in the process, not just in the rankings, but actually in the process of putting the data together? Well, I think the most impressive thing is obviously that the US and China are, are still number one and number two in our ranking and are really miles away from or from other countries in the world. Um, but I think what's also been really impressive to watch is the shift that Singapore has done across the past iterations of this index. And Singapore jumped from 10th to 6th place and then from 6th to 3rd place in just the span of two years. And how did is, it do that? So Singapore launched the first AI strategy in 2019, and since then they have really been boosting artificial intelligence across different sectors, from research, innovation, to uh, patents and talent, um, human capital, and so many other areas. You know, you know, one of the things that in the small print interested me, though, Serena, which I think surprised me, but it shouldn't have done, is that in the world of generative AI, i.e. the artificial intelligence that can answer an exam question or write you a PowerPoint presentation or create a picture, the things that you found and the team found was that the US is not just miles ahead. I mean, it's tens of miles ahead. That I think it was something like 70-odd percent of the companies that are creating generative AI are in the US or invested in in the US. Is that right? 70% of global private investment on on generative AI is in the US. And the question I've got then is, what will that world look like in which one economy is creating global services that are regulated or perhaps not very much regulated in the United States, but used by all of us? I think the question really is whether uh, generative AI will be clustered into a very, very small number of companies and and so countries. Um, And the power is also really shifting in the future will also be really shifting from uh, from being held by companies to being nation-based and uh, state-based. Um, and, and, and so I'm right in thinking, anyone who's listening, if they're really interested in this stuff, they can actually just get into not only the rankings, but also the data and the methodology 
in the Global AI Index on the Tortoise website. They can do all of that. Yes, and a lot more of these these insights and these results. Okay, well let's let's do that because otherwise we'll have created a whole new news meeting, the AI news meeting. Maybe that's the future. Serena, thank you for joining us. Thank you most of all for listening. As I said at the beginning, the news meeting returns next week, twice a week, Mondays and Fridays. Please do follow us. Please do join us. And do let us know, let me know, what you think should be running in the news. News meeting at tortoisemedia.com. But for now, thanks very much and have a very good weekend. Tortoise. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. She Love Cleopatra. is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.